0: Just in case you thought that the book of Daniel was going to be boring, let me assure you, it's not. (laughs) In fact, it gets more intriguing with each new chapter and with each new dream or vision. Today, we are arriving at the first portion of chapter 8, where we're going to dig into Daniel's vision about a two-horned ram destroyed by a one-horned goat, followed by the history of the little horn. That's not boring at all. At the very beginning of the study of this unique book, we learned that the book of Daniel was written in a brilliantly artistic fashion. There are parallel chapters that reveal certain bits of information about the four kingdoms and their leaders, and the parallel chapters would touch each other if you could fold the book in half. The first time a kingdom is represented, we have certain animals that represent the kingdom and or their ruler, And then the second time they're represented, they show up in a different form, perhaps as a different animal, because it's giving us future information and it expands on what we already knew about them. So although there are some similarities, there are also differences. And as we follow both, it helps push us into the future. And sometimes it gives us a shift in focus as well. Now, there's one additional feature that's helpful for us, especially as we arrive at Chapter 8 because the book was actually written in two different languages. From the beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 3, Daniel wrote in his native language of Hebrew. That would have been much closer to the beginning of his Babylonian exile, having gotten there from Israel. Then, starting in verse 4 of chapter 2, and going all the way through chapter 7, he switches to the language of Aramaic which is the language used by the Babylonians. So the portion of the book that deals with Aramaic has to do with Babylonia and their leaders, because God had a message for those specific leaders. It makes sense that he would write in a language that they could understand. Well, starting at verse 4 of chapter 2, he switches to Aramaic, and that gives us a clue. But after chapter 7, we see that shift of focus away from those first four major kingdoms of chapter 2, Babylon. Persia, Greece, and Rome. So where's the new focus? On to Israel. What language do you think we would suspect that Daniel would choose to write about that if he was focusing on Israel? Well, of course, the language of Israel, Hebrew. And that's what happens because chapters eight through 12 written in Hebrew. Most of the first section of the book shows Daniel being used of God to interpret dreams for the kings in Babylonia, and it makes sense that he would write in the language of those kings. But as he shifts toward a farther future event, and especially something that's going to be happening to Israel, we can understand why he would need to start speaking to those specific people, and he writes in that native language. Now, there's one more stylistic feature that I want to introduce to you, and some of you, especially if you've been listening to any of our growth encounters, you've come across this word several times, some from Mark Elwell and his teaching, some from Stephen Pipe and his teaching. This feature is called a chiasm. It was used a lot in Hebrew poetry. Sometimes it was also used in oratory passages in the New Testament, including some of Jesus' famous sayings. And so one of the most famous pronouncements that we have, some of the oration of Jesus, some of his sermons that were later written down, are recorded for us in the New Testament, including some stuff from the Sermon on the Mount. So let me give you an illustration of a chiasm from a portion of the Sermon on the Mount, this from Matthew 6, 4. Now you can see how if you could fold this statement in half by drawing a line right between C and C prime, right in the middle of the green section, that would split it in half. You could fold it together. You see how the yellows would touch each other and the blues would touch each other and the greens would touch each other because those are parallel statements, these couplets that are separated from one another because they're going to take us deeper into a specific theme or concept and then work its way back out until it touches back on that original theme again. It's very poetic, and it's artistic, and it's brilliant. And I love the fact that Jesus gives us this, no one can serve two masters, A, the original A, either he will hate the one and love the other, and then he starts backing back up again by coming back on his own statement, C prime, or he will be devoted to one, B prime, and despise the other. It's wonderful. And then he says all the way back to the beginning, you cannot serve God and wealth. So there's a little difference in the detail there between two masters and God and wealth. He gets specific there. That's kind of what's happening quite often with these parallel chapters in the book of Daniel. And in fact, are you ready for something mind-blowing? Drum roll, please the entire book of Daniel in its overall design is a modified chiasm. Boom. I think it's fantastic when you start to see the uh, rich, deep, complex, orderly, systematic way that God has in all of history because he inspired the events that happened in Daniel and it comes out to be a chiasm. Keep in mind now that Daniel experienced what he experienced in real time. He prayed for God's revelation because he needed information he didn't have. He even said so. He said, I can't do this, so I have to seek God and his revelation and his help because if I don't get anything from him, we're sunk. In fact, they would be dead because he needed to be able to interpret that very first dream in order for the king not to kill all the wise men. But when God provides that information, then Daniel simply writes down exactly what God said, and he was able to share the information with that particular king. So if you can see that there's all this complex literary style, who's the real author of this thing? It's not Daniel. The actual author of the book is God. Now, there are skeptics, of of course. There are going to be skeptics who are going to say, (laughs) I doubt it. They'll say, I think Daniel, or whoever might have written these chapters, carefully formulated their plan based on a specific literary style, and they wrote it years after the Babylonian exile. Now, humor me for just a couple of minutes as I respond in a way that I think may start to put some things in your mind to get you thinking more seriously about, who is the real author here? This video, it takes about two minutes. And I think you're going to be mesmerized by it. It depicts detailed, complex, orderly, symmetrical, and at times chiastic designs. But I want you to notice where and how these designs appear. Are you ready? I showed a brief clip from Amazing Resonance Experiment. So let me just leave those images in your mind for a moment and give you one more quick peek at the detailed, complex, orderly symmetrical and chiastic design of Daniel's book. And if somebody were to walk up to me today and ask, do you think it's possible that God could have worked through those dreams, perhaps even caused those dreams in the Kings and in the prophet, and that he could have put them in the right order so that they built on one another, revealing more information each time they show up as a prime of the original and turned all of that historic period into a chiasm. If you were to ask me that, I'd have to go on record as saying, yes, (laughs) yes, I do. So here's a summary of the first half of Daniel. We've already seen in the first half that for those who trust God, even when they are smack dab in the middle of their own impossible trial, they can count on God to show up. Like when we saw Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And when he does show up, he's going to display his glory and he's going to reveal his unlimited power. And we've seen that again and again so far, already just in the first seven chapters. Now, we're going to take a little bit of a turn in the road map of the book of Daniel. We're heading into the portion of the book that was written in Hebrew, as I mentioned, since it deals with Israel, and we're going to see some symmetrical complexity, order, and beauty in the way God wrote this history. Let me read chapter 8, and then we'll take a look at the key features including the two-horned ram destroyed by the one-horned goat, followed by the history of the little horn. Are you ready? I'm reading from the New Living Translation, by the way, and I'll make a couple of quick comments throughout because occasionally you'll have a different interpretation that winds up in a different version, and it makes a pretty big difference in how you're interpreting some of that. Here we go. Chapter 8, verse 1. During the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision, following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ulai River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. One of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west. One translation says charged. You can just picture this ram charging its way to the west, to the north, and to the south, and no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased, and he became very great. While I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, by the way, is not Tom Brady. This is an actual goat in this case, symbolizing one of the leaders that we're going to look at, just so you'll make sure that we're clear on that. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed toward the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both his horns. Now, the ram was helpless and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. No one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. It's a pretty powerful goat. Verse eight, the goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns pointing in the four directions of the earth. Remember that the horn in this kind of literature and in that era stood for the power and authority of a great ruler. Hmm. Verse 9. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. It extended toward the south and the east toward the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion. So the daily sacrifices were halted and truth was overthrown or literally thrown to the ground. The horn succeeded in everything it did. Then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple and heaven's army be trampled on? The other replied, it will take 2300 evenings and mornings. Then the temple will be made right again. Then we have an explanation starting at verse 15. As I... Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me, and I heard a human voice calling out from the Ulai River. Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of his vision. As Gabriel approached the place where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. That's a phrase in the New Living Translation that sometimes says the end of time. And that's why we need to be cautious about which translation we're looking at because we're gonna see that makes a big difference in just a few minutes. Verse 18, while he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground, but Gabriel roused me with a touch and helped me to my feet. Then he said, I'm here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to, and in the New Living it says, the very end of time, but in many uh, translations it says the time of the end, similar to that first phrase. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replaced the one large horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none as great as the first. Now, we're not going to have time to go through all the details of the rest of this, but I want you to hear the whole chapter so you'll have the context in mind, both for this week and next. So I'm going to continue reading through the rest of the chapter. Verse 23. At the end of their rule, when their sin is at its height, A fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. He will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but he will be broken, though not by human power. This vision about the 2,300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time, so keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up and performed my duties for the king but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Let's pray just before we look into the details. Father, it really seems like we're entering into territory that's very difficult to understand. And sometimes it feels like it's just too wonderful for us. And yet you have so much to teach us through this that what we can grasp, I pray you will help make clear through your Holy Spirit so that we can have a strengthened faith, an increased hope, and remain faithful to you as we serve you. And I thank you for that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Now let's look at the ram with two horns and let's work our way through the key elements in these verses. In verse three, we saw that it was standing on the bank of a canal. Some believe that they know which specific canal they're talking about because there's one that's still existing today. I grew up in Arizona where we had canals, and we used to ride our motorcycles on the canal banks to get different places. And so it was a big feature there because you needed canals to carry water so that they could have crops to grow food. And here was this, the ram standing on the canal with horns that were terribly high. One was higher and came up last. That's an interesting phrase. We're going to see what that means. This passage corresponds with that parallel passage in Daniel 2, verses 37 through 39, the chest of silver in the first king's dream, and Daniel 7-5, the bear raised up on one side with three ribs in its mouth, we know that those two symbols represented the Medes and Persians, the Medo-Persian empire. This ram pushed in three directions. We know from history what these three directions represent. It was the expansive military campaigns following Babylon's dominance. This ram pushed westward, subduing Babylonia, Syria, and Asia Minor, northward, subduing Lydia, Iberia, Albania, Armenia, and Cappadocia, and southward, conquering Arabia, Egypt, and Ethiopia. Good grief. I mean, that's expansive. There is no prophecy of Babylon in chapter 8. Hmm, I wonder why that could be. Because we're passing along through our chiastic structure into a period of history when For all intents and purposes, that last king and the nation of Babylon, they're passing off the scene. Hmm. Um, We can see now that this chapter 8 is beginning with a prophetic vision regarding the Medes and the Persians. So here we get this explanation. And fortunately, God knew that Daniel was really hungry for a word of explanation because he was scratching his head. And he sends Gabriel, the one whose name means God's hero, to explain all this stuff. And it's kind of a bad news, good news, sort of an explanation. He wants the explanation. Gabriel gives it to him. But the bad news was that Israel was headed for a really bad day. And it was a season, that day that means a season. This is a season in Israel's history when they're going to experience some awful things, the wrath. And we see in other passages that God is the one who's going to restrain his army from intervening during the season of this wrath. Even though Israel is going through a trial, God's going to hold back and not do anything to intervene. But the good news part of this passage is that there will be an end to this season of wrath. It's not going to last forever. I've told you this before, but years ago when my father was alive and he was going to have to have back surgery, he was just writhing in agony. And he said, it's sure going to feel so good when it quits hurting. And that's kind of what this explanation is about. He's saying, yes, Israel is going to be encountering something years from now. And when it does, it's going to be awful and it's going to be painful, but it's going to feel so good when it quits hurting. And we can also see that when God chooses to hold back an army, it's for good reason. When he allows his children to go through some terrible trial and even pain or a period of suffering or even persecution, it's a painful process, but it's for good reason. Steve Pipe introduced us to something in our study. This is a few weeks ago now, in our study about the life of David, who was a shepherd as a younger lad. You probably can tell what's going on here. There's that large metallic tank there, and you can see that there's a pole. Well, that would be equivalent of a shepherd's staff there. And what's happening to these sheep is that they're going to be dipped And it looks cruel what sometimes the shepherd has to do to get those sheep to completely get immersed. But there's something terribly harmful to those sheep. And if it infests them, bot flies or parasites, sometimes they were just uh, different types of lice, their job is to climb inside that sheep through whatever orifice it can find, normally through the nasal cavity. (laughs) And if it starts to replicate, because that's all it does, I mean, those things are parasitic and that's what they're made to do is to replicate. And if they can replicate some of them getting really big, especially the bot flies, I'm not going to show you the pictures of what that can look like in a sheep that's been terribly infested because it's just so gross. You can use your imagination. No, don't use your imagination. Your imaginations are gross. (laughs) But in order to rid the sheep of this thing that could not only cause them great harm and suffering, but could eventually actually kill them, the good shepherd is going to do something. It's going to immerse these sheep in something that for them is an antiseptic. It needs to find a cure for that, something that would ward off the very thing that would seek to destroy the sheep. And so because the shepherd is aiming its wrath toward the botflies and the lice and the things that could harm or destroy the sheep, it's actually putting the sheep through a trial. And sometimes the sheep won't become fully immersed. And so the shepherd will grab the staff And if it's a ram and it has horns, it will hook those horns and twist it and pull the head around so that it can actually get control over that head and push it down underneath the liquid so that it becomes fully immersed, because that's where it needs the antiseptic the most, because that's the point of entry of the thing that would seek to destroy the sheep, in other words. And if it's a sheep like you see here and there are no horns, then it can fairly easily put the crook around the neck, just behind the ears push that sheep's head down. Now, there may be some sort of a real empathetic shepherd who would think, man, I sure wish I could tell you, sheep, that I'm really doing this for your own good. I wish you knew that I was trying to save you from destruction. I'm trying to save you from discomfort and from something that would be awful. I don't want you to have to go through this whole season that would be far worse than the season of trial that I'm putting you through right now. This is a temporary trial, but oh, I'm telling you, if I let these botflies get a hold of you, that trial would be so much worse and last so much longer. Can you see that sometimes if we're making these comparisons, which come to us right out of scripture, as we saw in the study of King David, that God has his reasons. And oh, wouldn't it be good for us to recognize that when we're in the middle of a season of something that feels so awful and we're thinking, why doesn't God intervene? We can trust he's doing something perhaps in our own character Allowing us to be fully immersed in him so that when the time is right, we're going to come through it. And we're going to be, be so much stronger, but even better than that, there will be full healing involved. Something that's going to last forever. Let's look at the goat now. This goat who came from the West and had one conspicuous horn, almost like a warrior unicorn, which we saw in symbols on castles when we were over in not only the Middle East, but also in Scotland. It moved incredibly swiftly and charged the ram. Now this parallels with Daniel 7, 6, where we see the symbol of the leopard with four wings, which allowed it to move with incredible swiftness, not even touching the ground. It would just hover above the ground and whoosh, right across. Well, we saw that this represented Alexander the Great, who conquered the known world in 12 years. Very swift indeed. So Alexander, the ruler of the Greek empire, had two young sons, Alexander and Heracles. They were unfortunately later murdered, and so they never took over their father's leadership role. Now, the kingdom was divided after that. That one horn was knocked off, and there were four other horns that came up, but not as strong as the original one. That was the Okidoki diadoki. I had to remember my, my way of saying that. Say it with me now, okie dokie remember my pronunciation there, the Diadochi, which means successors, those were the four great generals who came along, each trying to carve out a portion of that empire-sized pie, and they each were trying to get a big, large slice for themselves. And so it was four smaller kingdoms instead of that one gigantic kingdom that Alexander had created. But there's something that we need to be cautious about in interpreting what's going on here as we look down through this passage, and that is Hmm. what to do with verses 19 and 23, what to do with the vision that concerns the appointed time of the end, and what do we do with this bold-faced man? Some translations say the stern-faced man. What do we do with that? It's tempting to read the time of the end in verse 19 and think it's referring to the very end, setting up Jesus' second coming especially in some translations, because it just almost sounds like that, the very end. You know, you put the word very on there, it means very. It's also tempting to get thrown off track by trying to associate the bold-faced man with the Antichrist, because that's the natural conclusion if it's going to be the very end, right? The right question to ask, if we're getting ourselves really digging in deep and super sleuthing what he means here, is to say the end of what, though? The phrase, the time of the end, was a general prophetic phrase, and it's an expression that we see all through Old Testament history and in other extra-biblical literature, which means the end of a particular period that you're studying, the end of a season. So we have to ask, oh, okay, so which period are we talking about? Which season of history is this referring to? Certainly, yes, there is going to be some... References later on to the very end. That's the season that we're talking about. But I, for one, do not believe that this particular passage in chapter 8 of Daniel is the very end season. I think the bold-faced man of chapter 8, because of the Hebrew language and a different focus, I think the bold-faced man is Antiochus IV, a.k.a. Antiochus Epiphanes. 175 through 164 BC. We have that clarity that comes by looking through history, the lens of history, and things become so much clearer because of that. That's why Daniel was told to lock these things up, hold on to them, keep them a secret. Remember that this scroll was sealed, and it's the New Testament that unlocks that for us so that now we can see it much more clearly. So I'm grateful that we have the New Testament because we are able to look back at Israel's history in particular. And Start to see very clearly what some of these things specifically related to. Let's look at this map of the okie dokie diadochi, the successors, and we can see that Seleucus or Seleucus is one of the great leaders that started way back over here, and then Antiochus IV was uh, down the line from the earlier king there, and that's the area that we're talking about these four horns and four kingdoms. Antiochus reigned over the Seleucid Empire from 175 to 164 BC. He serves as a foreshadowing or an antichrist type. Steve mentioned just this morning in our growth encounter that there are many Christ types in the Old Testament looking ahead to show us certain qualities we can look for in Christ himself, who is the embodiment and fulfillment of all of them. So none of the Christ types will be a Christ, but they're foreshadowing. Same thing on the opposite side with an antichrist Type, and oh, tell you what, Antiochus IV, <laughs> he was one of those Antichrist types. He was a bad dude. And if we think he was a bad dude based on how much evil he could unleash with his power, then when we look forward to the Antichrist, we ain't seen nothing yet. We have yet to see predictions of the great tribulation and the times when the lawless one will establish evil all across the world. And it's going to be a thousand times more terrible than when Antiochus unleashed his ego power. And I'm using that phrase a thousand times more powerful like I did last week and saying that means really, really a lot, <laughs> unlimited almost. We do know that God is going to limit that power ultimately but it's gonna feel like that God's people are just getting beat down. So let's look at the horn here. The horn, remember, a symbol of power and authority of a ruler that started small and grew in power Eventually, he would surpass the other horn, both of which were very powerful. Well, guess who Antiochus IV's father was? Yeah, you're right. It's Antiochus III. You're so smart. Good for you. Well, Antiochus had an older brother named Seleucus. Now, we in English language usually pronounce it something like Seleucus because we pronounce that C with an S. But I looked up a Greek pronunciation and got an actual Greek-speaking person on YouTube to pronounce it for me. And it says Seleucus, Seleucus. So they would pronounce that on the first syllable. I will probably revert to my Americanisms and just call them Seleucus because I'm so used to it. <laughs> but anyway, Antiochus was the younger brother of Seleucus. Both of them were the fourths. Why is that important? Well, it's important because when somebody's going to ascend the throne after the daddy dies, it's got to be the older brother. That's just kind of the way it worked. And so little brother, what was he going to do? Well, he's going to do what a lot of these younger members of royal family do. He's going to go to one of the best schools somewhere else. And he does. He goes to Athens. He went off to study in Athens. And while he was there, he began to grow in power slowly. Remember like the, the shorter horn that grew slowly, but eventually surpassed the other horn. He's growing slowly, but steadily. At one point, his leadership was recognized. And he probably cashed in a few chips from his connection with his daddy, who's dead. And he became the chief magistrate of Athens. Kind of like in our country when somebody will go off and become a congressperson or a senator or a governor because they're climbing the political ladder. While Antiochus IV was in Athens, his brother died. And I can imagine that at that point, Antiochus IV, I've nicknamed him A4, shed some crocodile tears for his brother Now, I know you probably have used that phrase. You know what it means, right? It means fake tears or insincere tears. But you know the origin of that, don't you? Because when crocodiles actually shed tears, they're shedding them as they're consuming their prey. (laughs) So, yes, brother passes away, and this gives... Antiochus the chance he needs. He's going to move in there, but he's got just one more roadblock to overcome. He's got a nephew that he needs to get out of the way. But because he's a man of intrigue and deception, very useful things in politics, and through some political manipulation, he gets the nephew out of the way and is able to gain control of the throne. (laughs) And so now we've got Antiochus IV, who's taking over that slice of the empire pie in the area of the Seleucids. Now, we can see that later, this is being predicted, and through history, we can know that it really happened, that Antiochus just wreaked havoc on Israel. I mean, he just did a number on them. He canceled the sacrifices. Oh my goodness, he did some bad things. He set himself up, and this is poetic imagery that we see there in verses 10 and 11, when he set himself up literally against God himself, because when somebody goes against God's temple, that's like you're going against God himself going against God's own army. And that was something that he was setting himself up to be was like a God, which means that he was going to usurp God's authority or power, as we saw happening with some of the uh, Belshazzar and Nebuchadnezzars of Babylon earlier on. Every time they start to do that, they get uh, pride that goes to their head. They start thinking of, of themselves as being little gods, and God has a way of humbling them ultimately. But in this case, not for a while. So, what did God do in response to all this terrible stuff that we're reading about that's going to be happening in Israel? Nothing. Not for a while. He restrained his army from responding to the rebellion. Yauza, which brings up really good questions. We would think, why? Why did he not intervene in this case? That's where I need to introduce a new word for you antinomy antinomy. Say it with me out loud. Antinomy. Antinomy. That's right. It's an apparent contradiction between valid conclusions. It's sort of like a paradox, but you could look at each one of these things and think, well, I can see that that as a valid conclusion, but it seems to contradict this other thing, which also seems to have a valid conclusion. Now, when I first started typing this in to find out what it was about, I inadvertently reversed the M and the N, and I came up with antimony which is a metalloid used in making alloys. And some of you chemists out there, do you want to know what the atomic number of this particular element is? 51. Good for you. If any of you got that, type it into the chat feature and say, I got it. I knew 51 was the co- atomic number and you'll get 51 extra living water points. <laughs> Woohoo! hoo This uh, element is a brittle silvery white metalloid used in making alloys and sometimes even in cosmetics. So now you know. But it's not to be confused with antinomy and one example of an antinomy these two things that are held up and we want to make one of them right and the other wrong and it's hard for us to do that one example of that is light itself so is it made of particles in some situations it looks like that's probably the case we think yeah okay yeah probably particles yeah is it traveling on waves well sort yeah sort of and scientists throughout centuries have sort of been baffled by many of the properties of light. Now, we know a lot more than we used to about that. And yet there are still certain attributes of light that continue to kind of make people scratch their heads and think, I don't think we have a full, complete understanding about why it can travel so fast. What is it that's helping it travel so fast? What is light? (laughs) And yet, just because we don't understand it, we don't stop believing in it. We don't go, man, I just can't wrap my head around that, and so I'm not gonna even call it light. I don't think it exists. No, we don't do that. In fact, we all benefit from the attributes of light. We can see its value every day of our lives. Let me offer a shameless plug here. This is a a little bit of a pause for a promotional announcement. There's a new podcast that we've just started recently. And my friend Rick in Colorado, I think he signed in with us today, in fact. Hello, Rick, Have started a new podcast called Monday Afternoon Theologians. Ojins, Ojins. And Rick and I have been working on this series of podcasts in which we wrestle with questions like, why doesn't God intervene and protect his children in certain situations? And we even introduced this term, antinomy, which I just said correctly, finally. Just last week, we recorded episode 13, Does God Control Everything? And that's going to be coming up in about two weeks and a day because we do this stuff uh, three weeks in advance. And this one's going to be showing up talking about how it raises questions if they say, Well, if God is sovereign, doesn't that negate my free will? No. (laughs) And we're going to talk about why, because that's an antinomy. That's one of those apparent paradoxes, but it's only apparent because as we see in God's completely integrated, perfect character qualities, we can't pit one character against the other. All right. Uh, This is available, by the way, on YouTube and also on several other platforms, as you can see there in the picture. You can listen to it on Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts, several others, and there will be more platforms coming available. What I'm hoping you'll do, Church, I'm hoping you'll subscribe to this So that as you see one of these things that pops up and if you've been in conversation with people that you're reaching out to and you're having conversations with, if you have a question about a certain topic or if they have a question, you can say, oh, I just heard a podcast about that let me send you a link to that podcast, and that's one way for us to start sharing resources with one another so that you can start hearing some biblical responses to some of the big questions that we all have as we're looking into things that are kind of deep in Scripture and in Christianity. Thank you. We now return you to your regularly scheduled message in progress. There is a theological antinomy, And that's starting to happen in the Old Testament through the prophet Isaiah. He's been talking about God's abundant mercy to Israel, and even though Israel has been rebellious and sinful, there's this apparent contradiction. How can God be both merciful and just? I mean, he's holy, right? So therefore, he can't look upon sin. He can't deal with sin. He has to to do something to punish sin. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a just judge. So there's this justice and mercy, and people have a hard time balancing that out because we, in our American mindset, especially this Western culture, we want things to be black and white, right or wrong. This way or this way It can't be both and at the same time. And so looking at God's complex but perfectly integrated character, we have a hard time with that. Let me put a parenthetical statement out there to you to say, and I mean this with all the love I possess. Some of the things that I've seen happening in 2020, pushed a lot of believers, well-meaning believers, into the seriously difficult, stressed out places of their personalities. The thing that caused us the greatest grief, in my opinion, is that we had a hard time holding two things up that may seem to be contradictory, and yet both may be true at different levels. And I won't go into a lot of details about that. I'd like to do a podcast on that later because I'd like to unpack that. But there are sometimes when we look at those issues and we think, oh, well, wait a minute. Yeah, this is right and we need to be doing that. So this must be wrong and we need to hate that. But sometimes we need to say, oh, wait a minute. What if both of these things exist simultaneously in a healthy tension and we can see God and his mercy being represented through these trials in such a way that we need to protect these people and do this And we need to do this over here at the same time, understanding that God is a redemptive God and he brings good out of bad situations. Sometimes if we can trust God enough and listen carefully enough to one another, we might see that we have some antinomies going on that have created far too great a strife when we're elevating that enough to say, I'm going to disfellowship myself from you because of this antinomy. Do these things have to do with our salvation? No. So should we disfellowship ourselves over this one thing that we have made our one big thing that we're camping out on? Shouldn't Jesus Christ be our one big thing? If Jesus Christ becomes our focus and our one thing that we know we can trust, absolutely, because he's got a perfectly integrated character, I think that maybe it would cause us to pause long enough to hear each other out and not attack one another as much as we have been in 2020. And I love the body of Christ. And I just hope and pray that we're going to see some reconciliation occurring among members of the body of Christ in 2021, after the aftermath of 2020. And I see that as sort of a something in Daniel. This is one of the things that I'm finding out of Daniel that's been so encouraging to me because this time of wrath that we knew as 2020, there's going to be a time when that's going to be over folks. We're not going to have to wear masks forever, I hope. (laughs) But if it goes on for a longer time than I'm expecting, just we need to draw hope from Daniel and understand that God's going to put an end to some of this stuff that has been creating such a ruckus. And we need to focus on him. Would you like to do that with me? I urge you to. And I urge myself to, because I know I've gone to some unhealthy places this last year. But boy, I want to love God's people just as God loves God's people. And I want to reach out to the people who don't know him yet and let them know that there's something they can put their hope in that will last forever. Mm -hmm. Now, so here's this theological antinomy from Isaiah. He says, and this is where we get to understand that we need to trust God and his character. He says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord. My ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. That's how we can know that, yes, there are two things Justice and mercy, and yet they both coexist perfectly in God because there is no contradiction in God. You can't pit one of his character qualities against the other because he's perfectly integrated and he knows how to have a perfect balance. In fact, that points ahead to a big event in which we get to benefit from it because all that perfection meets on the cross. Justice and mercy kiss. For now, we can rest assured that God's ways are higher than our ways. His love and his wrath are expressions of his perfectly integrated character, even in our own lives. If he seems to hold off for a time, maybe you're in one of those seasons right now and you're thinking, God, why don't you do something? Instead of intervening in our affairs, God may be holding off for his good purposes because he knows what's best for you. He really does. Trust him. You can trust him. It's helpful for us to know that we can trust God, but we don't have enough time to go into the rest of this and figure out the rest of some of the details for the remainder that I read but said we don't have enough time to do. So you're going to have to tune in next week, unfortunately, to get some of the rest of this stuff and to find out what this awful event refers to and when it's going to take place in Israel's history. For now, we can rest assured in God's perfect character and that he knows what's best for us. All the things that we're studying that we have been studying in the Old Testament, including the book of Daniel, are like neon signs pointing to the place where God's perfect character is revealed to us. And that's on the cross where Jesus died for you and for me and for everybody, whosoever who would believe in him so that they will not perish but have everlasting life. They can be immersed in him just as those sheep were immersed and then will be protected forever. Let's pray together. Father, I'm so thankful for what at first glance looks like a really complicated book. And yet through your Holy Spirit and through the revelation of history and because of the lens of the New Testament that unlocks that scroll, we can see how simple it really is. You've simplified the message that we need in each of us. You've simplified the gospel by making it so tangible because you became like one of us, took our place on the cross, died in our place, and all of us who are covered by your blood now can be free from sin and the consequences of that awful sin. And we have that hope that passes all human understanding to look forward to glory with you forever in your kingdom, which is gonna go on untainted by sin eventually when you come to reign in your perfect unlimited reign. And we're grateful that you're showing us Uh, foreshadowings of that through the book of Daniel because we know we can count on it because you've never failed to fulfill one of your promises. You never lie and you've never failed uh, to lose a battle either. All through history, you've never lost a single battle and you're not going to lose that final battle either. So thank you for all those promises. I pray that all of us would continue to put all of our trust in you and then live as one of your children shining your light displaying your love to others just as you have loved us in jesus name amen